You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and she came to her mother-in-law. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this short, powerful story of love and of your love for your people. We pray now that we would rest even more in that love this evening as a result. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a both a lower elementary night, so if you are a kindergartner through a third, second, third grader, and you've already checked in, you've got a sticker on, you can head out with these wonderful teachers, and it's a torch night. So if you are a fourth through sixth grader, you can head out as well. You guys have a great evening. Uh, one other thing to let you know, uh, normally you lower elementary parents would pick your kids up at the parlor. That room is off limits to us tonight. So they're going to be in the fellowship hall where we had our dinner last week. So that's where you can pick up your kids after the service. Well, hello everyone. Uh, It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after this service. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, in introducing this short book of Ruth, we talked about how this book has all the great elements of a wonderful love story. Uh, That of an unexpected romance, different people from different backgrounds that you don't expect to actually then fall in love, like Romeo and Juliet, or Jack and Rose, or Beauty and the Beast. And here they are. We've finally gotten to it. 
Ruth and Boaz. We, we humans, we love a good romance story. And don't scoff, because all of you do. Uh, even if it's not a romantic comedy, many, if not most, of the best stories all have elements of romance in them. In Braveheart, William Wallace fights for love. In like every Star Wars movie, it's usually in the background, but there's some sense of, ah, are they? Ah, I, I think, oh, ooh, ah, right. And nearly every sitcom is driven by uh, will they or won't they? Perhaps Jim and Pam from The Office is like the most classic example. And while Disney has, for some good reasons, moved away from the, the whole trope of the princess can't be happy unless she finds love storyline that like dominated all of their movies for 70 years or so, there's something really interesting going on and that barely anyone falls in love in Disney movies anymore. The narrative device is now almost exclusively that of like liberating and then celebrating the inner self on a quest of like personal overcoming or something. But even with the slow dying off of romantic comedies, those are just like some social observations for another day. But for now, yet again, even if romantic comedies and Disney movies aren't your thing, we all intuitively long for and want a story like this, a story of romance. We're going to think about why that is as we go, certainly as we wrap up this sermon. But Ruth 3 is just one of the best of the best. There's the unexpected couple. There is danger and risk. There's some steaminess. But all of that in the midst of chivalry, integrity, and committed covenantal faithfulness. Uh, if you're visiting with us tonight, in the first two chapters, we have seen in this story a Jewish family move away from God's presence in the, in the land of Judah because they were fearful of God's ability or God's willingness to provide. The wife and mother of that family is a woman named Naomi, and she loses her husband Elimelech, uh, to death in the land of Moab, and then later her two sons, who by then have married Moabite wives, they die too. And so Naomi eventually decides to move back to Bethlehem, and her Moabite daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law Ruth, comes with her because this woman, Ruth, has been converted to the God of Israel. Ruth is faithful to God and therefore faithful to Naomi. And despite God's goodness to Naomi to give her this committed daughter-in-law, Naomi, when she returns to Bethlehem, says that God has taken everything from her. In chapter 1, verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She is angry and bitter. And yet, by the end of chapter 2, God is giving Naomi even more than just a faithful and hardworking daughter-in-law. In a series of events that the narrator kind of winkingly marks up to luck and chance, Ruth is protected for and then provided for by the honorable landowner Boaz, who is a distant relative of her now dead uh, father-in-law Elimelech, who died years ago. Boaz is overwhelmingly kind and generous to give Ruth, who is an outsider, who is not of Israel, and who is a vulnerable woman, more food and security than even the law would provide for her. And so here's where we'll pick it up in chapter 3. We're going to see this chapter now play out under two narrative headings. Just first of all, a risky plan and then an abundant response. So first of all, a risky plan, as we mentioned last week, because of our familiarity perhaps with this story, and if you've read it before or you know this story, you know where the story is going, we can tend toward reading chapter three and four back into chapter two. And just assume that in chapter two, Boaz has like always been attracted to or really interested in this woman, Ruth. But chapter two has ended with Ruth and Naomi well-fed for a time, but with no lasting security, no long-term 
stability. Boaz certainly isn't making any romantic moves here. There's no dates, there's no phone calls, no text messages, no stereos outside of Ruth's window or anything like that. He seems to just be a really kind and generous man. That said, at the end of chapter two, it seems like through all of this, Naomi's disposition and outlook has changed from where she was at the end of chapter one, where she was bitter and angry. By the end of chapter two, now that her belly is filled, she's a bit happier, which is understandable, but she seemingly wasn't trusting in God through these difficult circumstances, but only trusting in good circumstances. In that sense, she's very similar to the whole history, the narrative history of the nation of Israel. Naomi is like a stand-in sign uh, for Israel, only trusting in God uh, when things are good, as he brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then they begin to get hungry and thirsty, grumble, grumble, grumble. And then, oh, God shows up and provides food and security, and God is so good, we will love him forever. And then the circumstances change a bit, and now we don't believe that he is good, and we will trust in ourselves. That's not to say necessarily that Naomi has never had any faith. Perhaps uh, when I used the word faithless for Naomi two weeks ago, uh, that was a bit of an oversell, but she certainly throughout this entire story has had, if nothing else, a very weak faith, a very weak faith in God's wisdom, in his power, and in his goodness. But all that put aside, Naomi then says this in verse one of chapter three. She says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now that Naomi's belly is full, she's actually able to look beyond herself. She's actually able to begin to see the needs of others. And she sees now, finally, sitting here next to her, her very committed and devoted daughter-in-law. She's making it for the time being, Ruth and Naomi are. But what if something were ever to happen to their generous benefactor, Boaz? What if Boaz in the fields tomorrow has a heart attack? Now what? What would happen to Ruth if anything were ever to happen to Naomi? Now, Ruth would be entirely on her own. And so Naomi has an idea. Verse two, is not Boaz our relative? With whose young woman you were? She knows because of the expectations of kinsmen redeemers. We talked about this last week of family, family redeemers, family members who were then able and almost expected to purchase you out of your own debt or your own slavery. And then starting with brothers to even marry the widow of a dead brother to provide stability and security. Naomi's thinking that maybe, just maybe, Ruth could appeal to Boaz to redeem her into a new marriage. Second half of verse two, Naomi says, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So here's what's happening. After the barley harvest, you've got piles and piles of, and piles of the stalks that have been cut down. So you've got this stalk, a long stalk, that then is connected to the sheaf, kind of the big flowery type thing that is surrounding the actual grain, the only bit of the whole thing that's actually worth using and useful for food. So in what turns into, in nearly all cultures of this time and period, uh, what turns into a communal party, you want as many people to be around that you trust uh, to work this 
uh, grain and barley to, into, to getting the actual piece that's useful uh, to be around to protect from thieves. You might have all this now useful grain. We see later in the story, Boaz is sleeping next to a huge pile of grain that is just like totally vulnerable to be stolen from. And so what you do is you cut off the stalk in a head, perhaps in a bag, uh, or you cut off the head from the stalk, and now you've got all of this flowery type sheaf in a bag maybe, and then you beat it around. You beat it down and you're separating the chaff uh, from the actual usable grain. And then you dump it out. The chaff is leafy, now dusty stuff mixed in with the grain. You've got to separate that from the useful stuff from the unuseful stuff. Modern day home farmers might have all that stuff in like a plastic Home Depot bucket. And you pour it out with like a box fan next to it. And the box fan blows out the chaff, the unuseful stuff, while the kernel, the, the grain, is maybe a little bit bigger than like a hardened popcorn kernel or something. It falls into another bucket. Now you've got a bucket full of usable barley grain. In ancient times, you'd make this an all day and all night like work party. It's a working lunch and a working dinner party. And there, no box fans, you just get all of the chaff and the grain and you just throw it up into the air, usually up on a hilltop where there'd be a good breeze and usually on top of a hard ground. This is called the threshing floor because you don't want to just do it in the grassy fields where there's dirt everywhere and then your usable grain actually gets mixed in and you lose the, the usable stuff. So you want to do this on a hard ground at the threshing floor. But the threshing floor, this place of this work party, often, not only in surrounding cultures, but even in Israel's history and culture, became a place of drunken revelry. Hosea 9 describes the threshing floor as a place of prostitution and idolatry. So it's to this party that Naomi then says in verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. She tells her daughter-in-law Ruth, she says, hey, look good, take a shower, smell good, signal to everyone and perhaps certainly signal to Boaz that you are available. Now, some commentators think that Naomi is telling Ruth to really signal, signal her availability, perhaps even dressing like a woman that Ruth most assuredly is not. I think more likely that she is saying, look, Ruth, you have been working so hard all day, every day in the hot sun. Uh, maybe you actually kind of smell like you've been working in the hot sun all day, every day. Also, take a shower. Uh, smell a little nicer than you normally do. But perhaps even more than that, she's even very likely been wearing widow's garments. She has been signaling to everyone that she is still in a place of mourning, likely wearing sackcloth to show that she is mourning the death of her husband still. And if that's the case, Naomi could be saying, hey, tonight, show everyone that your time of mourning is over. Maybe that's why Boaz and others have understandably kept their distance from Ruth. And so, then though, in verse 4, Naomi's plan gets a little steamier. She says, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, commentators will explain what Naomi's plan is as anything on a spectrum from totally fine and G-rated to very R-rated and anywhere in between. Uh, but it's almost certain that I think that Naomi is actually telling Ruth to do exactly what she just said. Like, there's no euphemism here. She's saying, after Boaz is asleep, 
go and take the blanket off of his feet. If you've ever been camping or something, in your blanket or your sleeping bag or whatever, like if you've got cold feet, you wake up. I think that's all she's telling him to do. Lie down next to his cold feet. And when he wakes up because he's got cold feet, he's going to wake up and see and maybe feel you right next to him. Now, that makes sense to us. It's a way for Ruth to approach Boaz in the middle of the night without drawing too much attention to herself. But perhaps what we miss culturally, though, is that there's evidence outside the Bible that this is a rare but not uncommon way for a woman to actually propose marriage or at least to indicate her willingness to a man that she would be willing to marry him. All well and good. A marriage would provide long-term security and provision for both Ruth and Naomi, especially when considering who the man is that Naomi is suggesting, a very generous and kind man, Boaz. But while we think this is a good plan because we think we know Boaz, this could go very wrong. This is, in fact, a very, very risky plan. Ruth is a Moabite, let's not forget. She is like the very, very less than minimum wage hourly worker who is about to approach and then propose to the CEO of her company. Boaz could very likely respond in the middle of the night with what in the world are you doing? Like yelling at her, waking everyone else up around, saying like, who do you think you are? to approach me in this way. Who do you think I am? To which Ruth would just have to like grovel and then slink away in humiliation with like a thousand, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I must have just misinterpreted. I must have just misread this. I'm so sorry. And as she backs her way out of this thing. And in that sense, it's even risky for Naomi. I mean, Naomi's got a pretty steady food supply now from Boaz through Ruth. The status quo seems way better. Don't do anything stupid that can mess up this supply of food. But again, while perhaps we're seeing for the first time a bit of uh, ambition and perhaps even faith on Naomi's part, the risk is almost entirely on Ruth. Not just in putting herself in a place that could come with social humiliation. Boaz could absolutely haul her in front of the people of Bethlehem and accuse her of being a woman uh, of a very horrible reputation, a very horrible intention of why she might have come to her or come to him in the night, or even worse, especially knowing the stories of the men of Bethlehem from the end of the book of Judges that we know that this is in the time of. Judges 17 through 21 is horrible, horrible of what the men are doing to the women of this time. Ruth coming to, the man, to a man in the middle of the night in this kind of intimate closeness is putting herself in a place of extreme physical danger. She might want to take her pepper spray along with her. But whether she trusts in Boaz, she trusts his, in his generosity, whether she trusts God, or whether she is just so committed to Naomi, for whatever reason, in verse 5, she says this to Naomi. She says, all that you say, I will do. Okay, so here we go. With a risky plan in hand, Ruth heads to the threshing floor work party, smelling better than she has in months, now in regular, like, non-morning clothes, and on her way, with her heart pounding out of her chest, she gets there. And we've already read ahead, and if you weren't paying attention while Leslie read the whole thing earlier, our next heading title is actually a total spoiler with what's going to happen with an abundant response. So here's the thing we know what Boaz's response is going to be. 
but Ruth absolutely does not. Now, we've got a little more context of what she's about to walk into, but let's read a bit of this again. Verse 6, so she went to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, which by the way, this doesn't necessarily mean that he was drunk. He likely drank wine, but we can often be uh, merry and uh, with a, by just a good and full meal as well. And if there was any doubt, we know that in just a couple of hours when he wakes up, Boaz absolutely has his wits fully about him. He is most assuredly not drunk. He is certainly not someone who is foolish with alcohol like Samson in the time of Judges, one of his contemporary uh, Jewish brothers. But Boaz has just had a really, really great night with his community all around him, a good meal, the merriness that comes with working hard along others, some good wine. In verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Oh boy, here we go. Like anything could happen now. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now this is masterful narrating. The narrator is switching perspectives between characters. So now that we are in Boaz's position of who is that? Of course we know who it is. Verse 9, he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And that's all she should have said. Remember, Naomi said to just lay down at his feet, uncover his feet, and he will tell you what to do. But because Ruth is so audacious, she just goes for it. If it weren't clear that her uncovering of his feet was a marriage proposal, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Ruth is pretty brilliant here. She's not only brave, but she knows what she's doing. She asked Boaz to spread his wings over her, which actually sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you remember in chapter two last week, when Ruth was on her face in a place of gratitude, asking Boaz why in the world that he would show kindness and generosity to her, a foreigner, he responds to her of her admirable commitment to Naomi. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz tells her, the Lord repay you for what you, have re- what, what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz has already said, you have come to find refuge under the wings of God. And now Ruth is asking Boaz to become the answer to his own prayer. That because you, Boaz, are someone in a familial place to redeem me, to marry and rescue me from the social isolation and vulnerability that I currently find myself in, be the means of God's grace to me. This is the moment of truth. And a good director would zoom in a bit on Boaz's face for a second as he considers, perhaps squints a little bit, and then the camera goes back to Ruth as she nervously waits, what is he going to say? And then Boaz replies in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He is acknowledging that any good blessing that Ruth will experience will come directly from God. May you be blessed by the Lord. Blessings will come from God even if these blessings come through and flow through other people, which he's about to step into. 
And we also then get the idea that there's likely a pretty good age difference between Boaz and Ruth. He calls her my daughter, which he had already called her in chapter 2. And now we have no idea of their ages, but maybe Boaz is like in his mid-40s or something, like the age of Naomi, while Ruth is in her 20s. Which Boaz then further indicates that he's honored and perhaps even a little flattered that Ruth is asking him to marry her rather than the young men, maybe the more attractive men who are out there. It's clear that Boaz thinks that she could have done better than him. And it's also clear from this that Boaz hadn't thus far been in the wrong for pursuing her, either because Ruth is still young enough or that she's been mourning or that because of Boaz's familial distance away from her, that he wasn't necessarily obligated by the law to redeem her. He's honored that she would ask him this. And what she has asked him has clearly moved him emotionally so that it's not just a request to fulfill some social contract. He goes on, verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He uses the same word to describe her, worthy, as the narrator used to introduce and describe Boaz in chapter 2, verse 1. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. In a world surrounding them where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, here are a perfect match. Two shining lights of virtue, of worthiness. In the middle of the night, in a moment of extreme physical and emotional intimacy, in a threshing floor context in which many others in the area were likely doing all the kinds of things that Hosea describes, Boaz tells Ruth, do not fear and stay right here until the morning. Integrity is so often defined as doing what is right when no one is watching. Ruth and Boaz, right here on the threshing floor, are models of integrity, even of sexual integrity. Two months ago, we spent an entire Sunday thinking about sex and sexuality from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to go back and think and consider more deeply about more than what we'll be able to say here tonight, you can find that on the website or the podcast feed from September 18th. But let me remind you of what we said then, that the marriage union is not simply a legal union or a social union. It is not merely a financial union or a familial union, but it is rather a union of bodies. It is a sharing of physical life. And so sex is something, as Tim Keller says, that God invented to do whole life entrustment with. Keller says that Paul insists it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life. That doesn't make any sense. Or that, we thought about that sex is that of like whole-selfing yourself to your covenantal spouse. In safe, trusting, growing, and flourishing marriages, you don't get or you don't give sex as a gift. You give yourself. You get the other self. Whole-selfing one another to enjoy full and unbroken communion. The Bible's view of humanity is that there is not some authentic inner self that is just imprisoned by some arbitrary body. That's not what the Bible understands, that humans are made for and as. The Bible doesn't teach that our bodies are incidental to who we really are, but that God has created us as total embodied creatures, not to be divided apart, 
divided, divided like body from soul, from desire, from experience, but that the answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is true, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are embodied creatures belonging all of us to the Lord. While Ruth and Boaz likely wouldn't have put it in exactly those terms, they think of their lives as lives lived before God. All of them. All of their lives. That while no one else might see, God does, and that matters. Not in some, like, Santa Claus, he sees you while you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you are good and bad, so be good for goodness sake. No, that is not what the Christian life is all about, but that All of our lives are made and created for God, for our own joy, and that actually matters. They care, Ruth and Boaz, care more about what God wants of them and for them than what they might want for themselves. And yet, their desire, even if there is some steaminess here, their desire is good, certainly with our understanding of marriage from the New Testament, that the New Testament writers on this side of the cross They and we know that marriage ultimately points to a greater reality of consummation found in our union with Christ. Remember, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. Just as we said last week, we don't look to Boaz, but we look through Boaz A Christian understanding of sexuality, of marriage, of longing for intimacy and romance doesn't look to sex, but through sex. It's not bad. In fact, it's very good. It's just not ultimate. It's a very good gift and a very horrible God. It ought to look like in shadow what is beyond it in substance of intimacy with the divine, full union and communion, knowing and being known, desire satisfied. So back to this worthy and virtuous Boaz and Ruth, their night of closeness and integrity, they know that all of this, for the sake of God's glory and for their own joy, they know that the fullest human life is not the celebration of self and the grabbing of uncovenanted uh, desire, but the denial of self and the expression of covenanted desire, whether that be one day with one another or in the reveling of the covenant love of God, they are here to honor the Lord even in the darkness. And not only that, Boaz is overflowing with honor. He is overflowing with integrity. He tells her in verse 12, now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He's saying, you could have married anyone, but if we're going to play this redemption game, which is great, I'm here for it, let's do it, but if we're going to do that, the only problem is that there is a redeemer closer to me, or closer than me. Like, we don't know the family relationships here. Maybe Boaz is like Elimelech's third cousin or something, but Boaz knows that Elimelech still has a first cousin, and if that's the case, then that first cousin ought to be the one to uh, first want to redeem Ruth. If that's the case, and there'll be much more to explore there next week in chapter 4, but he says in verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the evening. One way or the other, Boaz will see to it that God will provide for Ruth. 
that she has the social and familial security that she perhaps has never had, at least since she's returned to Bethlehem, but maybe even in her first marriage too. She was a Moabite married, married to an Israelite who was away from his own land and away from his family, potentially separated from all social and familial respectability and support there too. One way or the other, this nearer redeemer, maybe this first or second cousin of her dead father-in-law, or preferably Boaz, one way or the other, she will be provided for. She will have security. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. Even though it's so dark that they couldn't see each other, and surely neither of them could sleep through the night, perhaps whispering until sunup, just getting to know each other, just before the sun comes up, while it's still dark, second half of verse 14, he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Even though Boaz and Ruth have done nothing wrong, they have acted with utmost integrity, he still cares for her reputation. In verse 15, he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Again, he has loaded her with food, with provision. Now, with the immediately usable barley grain that they had just threshed and winnowed all day and night the day before. In verse 16, she gets home. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And the narrator here is undoubtedly being very intentional with his words. Like, we never heard Boaz say those words, Right? before, the night before, we don't hear Boaz as he's loading her up say, you can't go back empty-handed to Naomi. These are Ruth's words here that she is giving through or from Boaz through her. But that word is very intentional. God did not abandon Naomi like she had accused him of. When she came back to Bethlehem, she said, I went away full and I came back empty. The Lord has taken everything from me. Now she's not empty-handed. God did not abandon her. He was not neglecting her or acting in evil toward her. He is wise and good. She was never truly empty. She had the most loyal and devoted daughter-in-law that she could have ever hoped for or prayed for. But now through a kind and generous redeemer, whose generosity then flows through a faithful and devoted daughter-in-law, through this Moabite outsider, God provides for Naomi. He fills her. Because here's the best part of Ruth and this entire book and story, certainly of chapter three, that while Boaz tells Ruth that there is a redeemer nearer to her than him, there's a redeemer who is nearer still. In Isaiah 43, the text that we used for our profession of faith tonight, the text that the song, How Firm a Foundation is Based on, God says this in verse 1 of Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. God has redeemed and purchased his people out of slavery. He has cared for them. He has provided for them a place of security and standing in good circumstances or in bad. In Isaiah 54, he says, For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. He has betrothed himself to his bride in covenantal faithfulness. And these days, to a national and ethnic people we call Israel, but then exploding outward to then become a people of all nations and all languages. We see small, small hints of where this story is going with individuals like Ruth the Moabite. But ultimately, this whole thing is heading towards a full and final marriage supper to the good and kind, the generous and providing Redeemer. If we would just but come to him and rest in his covenant faithfulness. The love of God is so deep, so wide, so vast and far that it is even better than Boaz and Ruth. It's even a crazier pair of unexpected lovers. That the perfect and glorious high king of heaven would then betroth himself, wed himself to weak and selfish sinners like you and me. That's a crazy love story. Unexpected. But apart from him, we find ourselves in a place of even greater vulnerability, greater destitution than even Ruth found herself. We find ourselves in a place of slavery to the, to the self, slavery to sin. Or, and we even think about places like Psalm 30 that we use in our confession of faith, that God redeems us out of sin. A slavery that is far worse than the slavery that Israel experienced in Israel, but to ourselves. There's a price to pay to redeem his bride from her slavery, and Jesus pays it. He paid it all. All to him I owe, his death for yours. But again, this love story is the greatest love story ever told in that he redeems his bride by his death. But then, what good is a marriage or what good is a love story if one of the lovers is now dead? He breaks the bonds of sin and then he breaks the bonds of death itself that he might then actually marry his now freed wife in love for eternity. What a savior, what a redeemer, what a God, what a bridegroom. And yet, can you imagine this story? Can you imagine what we would think of this book? How disappointed we would be if Ruth chapter 4 then went somewhere unexpected. Can you imagine this story? If after Ruth marries Boaz, out of her isolation, out of her destitution, out of her vulnerability, now in covenant faithful marriage, now Ruth then actually, then for the first time, then begins to go out to the other young men. Those other lovers who are not worthy, not generous, not kind, or overflowing with covenant faithfulness. And yet every day of our lives, these other lo lesser lovers beckon, and very often we listen. We go to them. And yet, as we often use in our assurance of pardon from Zephaniah, our faithful Redeemer says to our loud and restless, wandering, adulterous hearts, this very Redeemer, the God of creation, comes to his bride and he says, I will quiet you by my love quiet your restless hearts by my love for you. And so his invitation is to come and rest. Come and rest in him. The very thing that Naomi asked at the very beginning of chapter 3 where she says, my daughter, should I not sing, seek rest for you that it might not be well with you? This is what God has come to offer and to give. 
tonight for the first time an initial saving faith and repentance? And we would love to talk to you after the service about what that means for you in your life, to come to him, to find the rest that he is offering, to just finally be overwhelmed with his love, by his faithfulness to you, or perhaps for the thousandth time, the 10,000th time tonight in coming to Christ and saying, you are, you still are, you still are more beautiful, more generous, more faithful than all of the other voices out there. I believe this. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I am yours. But at the end of Ruth 3, Ruth can't even say that yet. She's still waiting. She's still even hoping. Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Even Naomi looks at Boaz and says, you can hang out here and rest a bit, knowing that he will not rest until this is accomplished. He will do the work. We will wait on him. And we still have one more chapter next week to both wrap this up looking back and then launch this thing forward and where this is going, especially even straight into the Christmas season. But for now and today, might we sing, might we pray, might we believe and live into this reality that Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what you are, I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Not just your great and sovereign heart, but of your loving heart. You have bid me to gaze upon you as your beauty fills my soul, for by your transforming power, you have made me whole. This is the gospel, to give rest, to bring transforming wholeness, to bid his covenantal spouse to come and rest, into being now sons and daughters of the Most High King. What a gospel, what a redeemer. We got one more chapter. And it's even better than this one. So read chapter four this week and come back hungry for more next week. Let's pray. Jesus, we are resting. We want to rest even more deeply. Help us to rest. We want to believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to look less to ourselves, look more to you, into your beauty, into your love for us. Help us to rest in your covenantal faithfulness, not in what we have brought and offered to you, because we have nothing. We have nothing to offer, but vulnerability, but destitution. But you have offered all. You have paid it all into all. All of that to you we owe. We give you our lives. We want to more and more give you our lives, devoted to your service, devoted to your love, devoted to your glory. Help us, we pray. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.